gotten to be with you guys a number of times before. Each time I come, the intros get slightly more flattering, which I appreciate. No one does the intro like Pete Hughes, where he insults you, forgets the name of your book, and then uh, overpromises all in just a matter of 60 seconds or so. So I'd love to start here. Uh, John Perkins was born in 1930 in the state of Mississippi in the American South. That is a difficult time and place for a black man. He fled the South as soon as he could, but then an encounter with Jesus led him back to the very place that he promised himself he would never return, and he founded a ministry serving in his hometown kids who grew up marginalized and ostracized and poor exactly as he did. Then in 1966, two of his own children, Spencer and Joni, became the first black students to ever enroll at Mendenhall High School, the public high school there in the county. And there happened to be a bit of an outpouring at the high school that year. There was something like a revival happening in the chapel class where students were coming down the aisle through the desk, falling on their knees in a weeping mess to meet Jesus in the middle of their high school assigned chapel class. And yet, in spite of that, in the two years the Perkins kids were enrolled, not a single student ever spoke to Spencer or Joni in the hallway or sat down with them in the lunchroom. Somehow, the walk down the aisle to meet Jesus had been divorced from the walk across the cafeteria to share the company of the marginalized. Do you see the disconnect there? Yeah? Why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? That's one of the most important questions in the Bible. It's the most explicit example of a sentiment about Jesus that confuses the priest continually. If he really is the Savior, why is he with him, her, them, with the marginalized and needy, with hungry widows, with bank morally bankrupt tax collectors, with powerless peasants, with poverty-stricken sex workers? If he really is the Savior, then why isn't he more comfortable about his company? That question is revealing not so much of a blind spot within Jesus, but with a blind spot within the temple of Jesus' day. Somehow the walk down the aisle to meet Jesus had been divorced from the walk across the cafeteria to share the company of the marginalized. That blind spot, that disconnect, it's not a new thing. It did not start in the American South in the 1960s. It's an ancient thing that we can trace all the way back to the temple of the first century. But equally, or even more ancient, is God's preference for the company of the poor. God's great passion is people, and God has a particular soft spot for the most marginalized people. Uh, in the incredible memoir of Tara Westover, she, who grew up impoverished, writes this, I began to experience the most powerful advantage of money, the ability to think about things besides money. You see, when I talk about poverty, I'm not speaking of the inability to afford. I'm talking about the inability to choose. Gregory Boyle adds, it is a self-help maxim of the privilege to say, don't sweat the small stuff. But the folks at the bottom have to. What the privileged consider small stuff are precisely the trips and traps that foil the folks at the bottom. No bank account, no car, or one that reliably gets you where you're going. No health insurance, several dollars short of a package of Pampers. And when you've got a poopy baby and no diapers, I'd say sweating would indeed be in order. It isn't simply that being poor means having less money than the privileged. It's that being poor means living in a continual state of acute crisis. This is what they have to lug around every day. 
You see, poverty doesn't mean uh, a lack of needs. We all have needs. Uh, Poverty is the inability to fix my needs by my own free choices. Poverty is, I can't just leave the city if my plan doesn't work out. I can't just switch my kids' school if they're not thriving in this environment, and I can't just get a new apartment if this one develops wraps or asbestos or mold. Poverty is the loss of the privilege that we call choice. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in response, Jesus quotes a prophet, Hosea. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's referencing a passage that would not just be known, but memorized by the priests that he's responding to. And when he references that passage, he's dragging thousands of years of history into the minds of those posing the question. Let me catch you up on the history. The biblical word for personal righteousness is tzedakah. Can you say that? And the biblical word for outward justice is, does anyone have a guess? Sadakah. Now that's important because it means that when you read the Old Testament and you come across the English word righteousness, you can just swap it out for justice. And when you come across the English word justice, you can swap it out for righteousness. So biblically speaking, to be righteous is to care for the poor, and to care for the poor is to be righteous. The issue with what happened to the Perkins kids at Mindanao High School in the 60s and in the Jewish temple in the first century is this. You are trying to separate something that God has joined together, interpersonal righteousness and outward social justice. In Old Testament spirituality, a devout life of following God was summarized by the rabbis into three core practices, fasting, prayer, and what they called almsgiving which does mean giving money, but it also means a whole lot more than that. It means giving of your time, your service, your energy, and your privilege. It's a whole lot less like what we would call generosity and more like what we would call social justice or what I would like to call mercy. So private spirituality is expressed by prayer and fasting, and public spirituality is expressed by mercy. And that's so crucial because it means that the Hebrew understanding of devotion to God was to be righteous is to care for the poor, and to care for the poor is to be righteous. That's how central mercy was to the temple. In fact, uh, there are over 200 distinct biblical references instructing us on how to care for the poor. That works out to roughly one out of every 10 Bible verses. So yes, it does seem that poverty is on God's mind and that those affect by it, affected by it have a, a particular place in his heart. Now that brings us up to the prophet Hosea who said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the quote Jesus used in his response. Now, sacrifice in Hosea's context was in reference to strict observance of a religious ritual. In other words, mercy toward others gets you closer to the heart of God than just following all the rules to a T. Many have summed up the prophetic message this way. The quality of your faith will be judged by the quality of justice in the land. And the quality of justice in the land will be judged by how the weakest and most vulnerable groups in society fared while you were alive. You see, the claim is our standing with God does not only rest on our private personal spirituality, but on how we stand physically with the marginalized. By that standard, how are we doing, church? Jesus did not soften the Old Testament teaching. He actually took it further. In the Old Testament, it's one out of every 10 verses that deals with how we care for the poor. In Luke's gospel, that's up to one out of every six. Uh, 
So Jesus also did not just say that God stands with the poor. He said that God is in the poor, that how we treat the poor is how we treat God, according to Matthew 25. And in fact, if you fast forward just to one generation after Jesus in AD 70, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by an enemy nation. So Israel had no formal place to worship anymore. A spirituality that was built around a building now has no building. And in that period, the rabbis had to reinvent a way to personal righteousness. And so they replaced the whole sacrificial system with caring for the poor as a way to make oneself right before God. So instead of taking the best of your livestock to the temple to be sacrificed for your sins, you would take the best of your harvest to your neighbor to help them get through the winter. That's how central mercy was to the temple. Tim Keller says, from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of other religions as a God on the side of the powerless and justice for the poor. Now, finally, we come to the early church. And according to the Didascalia, which is a recovered order of worship from the third century, there were two essential positions of leadership in every early church congregation. There was the pastor who stood at the front and gave instruction and teaching. And there also needed to be a deacon who stood at the back door and would greet people as they came in. He served as essentially the church bouncer. So you need a spokesman and a bouncer to start a church in the third century. Now, in that same document, we have recovered instructions for what that deacon slash bouncer is supposed to do if someone comes in late, because tardiness to church is an ancient problem. It's not a new thing that just developed recently. It's always been around. And then the Didascalia lays it out in detail. It says, if a person walks in late to the assembly after the speaker's already begun and they're wealthy, then they should be instructed to stand in the back so as not to disturb anyone else. But if if the newcomer is poor, then they should be personally escorted to a seat of honor at the very front of the room. And if the deacon happens to be slacking and not notice the person walk in, then the speaker up front with plain view of the full room should stop what they're teaching, personally greet the poor latecomer and invite them to a seat of honor at the front. And if it's a particularly packed service and there are no seats available, then the pastor himself should stand up and give the poor latecomer a seat of honor that he was seated in at the front. It did not matter whatever else was happening when someone arrives in the church who in the outside world might be considered last, in here, they're first. Gregory Boyle, who's a Catholic priest and the founder of Homeboy Industries in South Central LA, tells the story of a young man named Cruz. Cruz spent his last dollars taking a Metrolink train 60 miles to, to Los Angeles from San Bernardino, where he had relocated his lady and newborn to avoid the dangers and desperation of his previous gang life. He had a part-time job, but couldn't get his boss to give him more hours. Now he sits in my office, rattling off a list of pressures and needs of his family, with no safety net in sight but me. He speaks of no food in the fridge, no lights, landlord looming, no bus fare. And when he finishes his breathless account, Cruz stops, shaken and exhausted. He grows teary-eyed and says quietly, I just keep waiting. For what, son? I ask. For the last to be first. Can't that be now? I mean, at least in this community, in this corner, in this city, can't the last be first among us right now? God's great passion is people, and God has a particular soft spot for the most marginalized people. That's why this teacher eats with tax collectors and sinners. Recently, the New Yorker magazine has done not one but two articles profiling the church in America. 
And one of those articles concludes, one denomination's leadership has resigned itself to the fact that secular culture will always be hostile toward the church. And I completely disagree with that conclusion. I think the world outside the church, generally speaking, wants the things the church is always talking about. Love, justice, mercy, hope, freedom, peace. The world wants the kingdom. It's the king they're not so sure about, but the kingdom, absolutely. London is longing for a community that becomes a living picture of this kingdom. Can London find that within the church? Or maybe if, if you let me come a little bit closer, can London find that in this church? Hindsight makes it so easy for us to see the dysfunctional spirituality of the temple in the first century or of a high school integrating in the American South in the 60s. But what about now? And what about us? You see, if your discipleship is not, uh, if your discipleship to Jesus is not edging you increasingly toward the marginalized, this same disconnect is alive and well within you, cloaked in the clever disguise of a new time and a new place. So let's bring all of that back to this question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Matthew 9, the priest pulls a couple of Jesus' disciples aside to ask that question. They're saying, if he was really sent from God, he would know the past of the people at his table, and he'd be more careful about who he's seen publicly with. And Jesus responds, go and learn what this means. Now that phrase, it can also be translated, go and find out what this means. So we're not talking about library learning here. This isn't book learning. This is street learning. Go and relationally sort this out. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Proximity to the poor. That's the prescription Jesus writes to cure this spiritual disease. When Dorothy Day was asked, how do you live the gospel? She answered simply, stay close to the poor. Relationship to those on the margins is not an optional expression of worship for Christians of a particular political persuasion or bend towards social justice. It is an inseparable part of what it means to follow Jesus and a priority of, that effortly tumbles forth from the heart of God and always has. So is your discipleship to Jesus edging you increasingly toward the marginalized and the oppressed? There's a woman named Barbara Goodson who cuts hair at a salon in Houston, Texas. She decided to uh, start giving free haircuts on her day off to those who had recently been released from prison and the houseless that lived uh, in and around her community. It started with a just a few haircuts a month, and she accidentally became the unofficial stylist of a local battered women's shelter and of the uh, recently released from incarceration. She went and found a way to dignify the undignified. She went and found out mercy, not sacrifice. So serve a foster family or begin to provide aid to a refugee or mentor a kid who's in need or start mopping the floors at a local rehab or visit a city prison with enough regularity to uh, learn someone's first name. I don't know your city. You do. So where are the pressure points where the deep needs of this city happen to match the resources of this community? There's an invitation from God in the space between there. Go and find out, KXC. Let's walk a few steps behind Jesus and find out. And the steps behind Jesus into relationship with the poor, I would say go by this name, justice, mercy, and kinship. So first, let's start with mercy. Jesus got himself into trouble with the rabbis because he made friends with all the wrong people, in their estimation at least. He kept hanging around in public with the marginalized. Marginalized defined as not allowed inside the temple. 
You see, in Jesus' day, there were certain people who got turned away at the temple door. Among them were the terminally ill and the disabled, lepers, and the blind, and the deaf, and the handicapped. They couldn't get into worship because it was believed at this time that chronic illness was a sign of a curse from God. And if you've done something bad enough to have a terminal disease, you're not bringing that curse in this sacred place. That was the deeply flawed logic. So there's an infamous moment that's recorded in all four Gospels where Jesus barges into that very temple and starts throwing a holy tantrum, flipping over tables and kicking open dove cages. And I want to read from Matthew's account of that moment. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. That's the famous line. But take a look at the very next verse. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you see what he's done? Jesus brought the blind and the lame in with him, the disqualified, the barred from entry, the turned away at the door. Jesus says, bring them in. You should picture the disciples leading the blind through the gate, James and John picking up a wheelchair and carrying it up the temple steps. And what happens once they're inside? He heals them. That means the priests now have no grounds to ask you to leave. The illness you've misdiagnosed as spiritual? I took care of that. He's welcome in my father's house. She is welcome in my father's house. Jesus entered the temple and then made room for the disqualified to come in behind him. So as you increasingly regather as a church, who are you making room for to come in behind you? What Jesus started then, he finished seven days later at his crucifixion. When the temple curtain was torn top to bottom, the symbolism was obvious to every observer, everyone. That's who's welcome in my Father's house, every last one of you. And not after you get healed in your current condition just as you are, because it's the Father's welcome that heals you, not the other way around. Jesus just turned the temple inside out. <laughs> Suddenly the outsiders are insiders and the insiders are outsiders. So if we're going to talk about mercy, we first have to acknowledge that, friends, this starts in here. Because Jesus did not begin by critiquing the tax system and the unjust oppression of the Romans. He did not point a finger at the corrupt political leaders and public policies. He started with the church. This starts in here. That's why Stanley Hauerwas says the first task of the church is not to make the world more just but to make the world more the world. What does he mean by that? He means only when we become a picture of an altogether different society do we actually have a better story to offer our city outside. This starts in here. And so as you continue to regather as a church, who's coming in behind you? Who is it that you are making room for in this community? Who do you know that implicitly, accidentally might feel like an outsider in your company? And are you using what you have to let them know that they're family? As the church regathers on this side of this stingy pandemic that just won't quite let go, the easy to overlook and the costly to love, they should be making their way in with us as we regather. Our churches should look a lot messier than we remember them because that's how Jesus comes into his house. So there's mercy, then there's justice, because of course, 
Jesus wasn't only inviting a friend or two to come in the temple with him, right? He was also ah! flipping tables over and there's cash registers spilling across the floor. He's kicking open dove cages and there's feathers flying everywhere. He brought a homemade whip and let a stampede down the temple steps. The meek and mild savior is raging. <laughs> so what's Jesus so worked up about? Well, this story takes place in the court of the Gentiles. You see, the ancient temple, it was uh, designed in several layers. Each one of them was protected by a gate. So even for those who were allowed in the temple, there were then restrictions to your access. And that temple design, it wasn't about aesthetics. It was about theology. The belief was that God lives at the center in the Holy of Holies, and there are qualifications and statuses that get you more and more access to God. And if you were not of the chosen race, you weren't getting past the outer courtyard, hence the name, Court of the Gentiles. And where did the priests set up their marketplace? In the Gentiles' only place of worship, their only place of prayer. By modern scholarly estimates, a dove would have cost you six cents outside and it would cost 75 cents in the temple. There was a currency exchange and the sanctuary shekel was the only acceptable form of payment. That's how they made sure you bought your sacrifice in here. They were ripping people off who were trying to purchase forgiveness. That's what Jesus is so worked up about. Jesus did not only invite the blind to come in, he also turned over the tables. He did not only serve those who were victimized by the system, he also calls the system what it is and bends it toward justice. You see, mercy is about humanizing, dignifying, and serving those who are forced to live on the margins of society. Justice is about correcting the systems and structures that marginalize them in the first place. Jesus does both. And then he invites us to do the same. Revival in the chapel class and racial justice in the school system. Feeding the hungry and systemic poverty. Visiting the prisoner and mass incarceration. Going to the margins to know the down and out by name and turning over the tables that marginalized them in the first place. Jesus does both and then calls us to do the same. Now what happens when we do one without the other? What happens when we practice mercy without justice? When we serve those victimized by the system with one hand while benefiting from the very system that victimized them with the other? Kenneth Leach says this is what happens. The church then becomes a resource of the culture and no longer its critic. Theology becomes a servant of the social order. The God of justice is tamed and put at the service of organized injustice. You see, when the church practices mercy without justice, we're treating the symptoms while ignoring the disease. We are caring for the victims of a corrupt system without turning over the, the system or the tables of the system that victimized them in the first place. The prophet Amos said this in Amos 5. I find Eugene Peterson's paraphrase quite helpful. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want want. 
And in the Greco-Roman world where the early church took root, women were powerless and were described as possessions in the legal documents of the empire. Sex slavery, what we now call sex trafficking, was accepted as the norm and publicly practiced. And then the early Christian church came along and they became the first community in history to call that injustice by its name and bend it toward justice, advocating for systemic change. The historian Kyle Harper says that you can trace the spread of the early church by tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery within the empire. Now, are you hearing that? The most reliable index we have, historically speaking, for the spread of the early church throughout the Roman Empire is the legal ban of sexual slavery in city after city and village after village. You know what that sounds like? Good news. <laughs> sounds like justice, right? Dr. Cornell West says love in public is called justice. And that's what Jesus was doing when he's flipping over the tables within the temple. He was acting out a profound public sign of love. So there's mercy, there's justice, and ultimately all this is driving at kinship. Jesus told a mysterious parable in Luke 16, one of the strangest to understand that he ever uttered. It goes like this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. From there, the parable skips ahead to the death of both men. The poor man Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man is in hell, but he can see heaven far off in the distance. And so he calls out to Abraham, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And then the credits roll. That's the end of the parable. It's like that dark, moody indie film that you went and saw with your friends, and it was just going on and on, and you weren't sure where it was going, and then it just ended, and you pretended to like it at dinner to seem sophisticated, but you had no idea what had just happened. What a strange, unsettling story. Now, at first glance, the obvious conclusion is that the rich man is condemned because he wasn't merciful, but push past the first glance and look a little closer than that. The rich man, dressed in the purple of royalty, living in luxury, allows Lazarus, a houseless man with leprosy, to live at his front gate and eat his excess food. Now think about that. This is the front gate of a private residence. The movers and shakers of Jerusalem finance are coming and going to, for meetings with Lazarus, and, or I'm sorry, with the rich man in their chariots. They're passing by a vagabond leper. Now, houselessness is one thing, but we've already covered the harsh social stigma that came along with associating with someone with leprosy. And this rich man was merciful enough to tie his reputation to this man, Lazarus. He let him crash at his gate and eat the leftover filet mignon from his business dinners. And on some level, he's taking social risks to care for this man. How many of you have a homeless, terminally ill patient living on your front steps? See, this man took care of the needs of the poor. There must be something going on here beyond just a lack of mercy. Well, only in this parable does Jesus name one of his characters. And notice the name that Jesus gave the leper, Lazarus. That's the name of his best friend, closer even than his brothers. Uh, the name of the man whose loss he wept over. And did you catch the rich man's request? Send Lazarus to my five brothers. 
He's urgently concerned for his people, for his siblings, more so than he's ever been for this man that he's now trying to send out as a messenger. To summarize the theologian Leonard Sweets, the rich man is condemned because he thought he had five brothers when God actually gave him six. See, this wasn't a sin of mercy. He helped Lazarus. This was a sin of relationship. He did not see him as family. He did not embrace him as brother. He did not welcome him to his table as his own. He did not include him in his community. The rich man did not lack mercy. He alleviated Lazarus's suffering from a safe distance. He lacked relationship. He did not enter into that suffering and shoulder it as his own. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, only love gets close enough to know. And the rich man did not get close enough to know. He kept Lazarus in a particular space as a separate project. Why? Because isolated acts of service are far easier than welcoming someone all the way in so they can become family. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were never offended that Jesus would serve the poor or be a missionary to the outcast. They were offended that he would recline at table with them that he would count them as family, that he would welcome them as equals, that he would get close enough to love. My friend Gemma served for years in a ministry called Broken Hearts that serves uh, houseless addicts on the streets of Los Angeles. And she told me the, uh, the story of a man named Casey who once wound up in the ER due to a combination of a crystal meth addiction and funding that habit by prostituting his own body. Casey had developed a very concerning, painful abscess on his leg. And the only way that the doctor would release him after treating him initially was that if someone would commit to pack and dress the wound every day, because that was what was required for any kind of healing. So Gemma gets a call from the emergency room, and it's a man that she also knew from the street that happened to be uh, there at the hospital with Casey. And she's essentially saying, what, you want me to, to wrap some gauze around a wound? Sure, I'm happy to do that. All right, we've got to come down to the hospital. Okay, and so she shows up, and the doctor looks surprised. Ma'am, are, are you really sure you're willing to do this? And she's like, yeah, just give me the first aid kit, doc. I got this thing. And, and then she walks into the room, and the doctor points out the wound, and she finds that leg was a very relative term for the location of this abscess, that it was significantly further north than what most would consider a leg. And then Gemma spent the next, next week dressing and undressing that wound twice a day entering into the pain and vulnerability of addiction, ravaging both a soul and a body, bearing the burden of that wound right alongside Casey. You see, when we stop keeping a safe distance and get close enough to know, when we stop merely advocating for the cause and start knowing the name and the face and the story behind that cause, when we stop sending a card to the hospital and we start dressing and undressing wounds, that's when we die to ourselves that we might come alive in Jesus. When we're transformed in a way that truly transforms others. Parker Palmer writes, we cannot do good by standing back and pulling levers that drop bounty on people who need it. Right action can only be an immersion that involves us in relationship. And mercy and justice, when it gets expressed relationally in this way, it's called kinship. And kinship cannot happen from a safe distance. It is inconvenient and costly and it involves you in relationship. Kinship is a love that enters into the burden by sharing it, by shouldering some of the weight on myself. 
It means that that stranger is more than just a mouth to feed or a statistic to correct or a face to pity, but he or she is brother and sister. It means getting close enough to love. The author David Fitch says, while most churches have programs that reach out to the homeless, destitute, or broken peoples, rarely do we minister to them by making them a part of our congregation. Our local congregations look strangely homogenous in comparison with our vision and our programs. It is not enough to serve the poor. Jesus does not call us to charity. He calls us to family. Jesus repeatedly contrasts his, the community that his disciples are to create, the church, with the community that the priests of his day had created, the temple. In Luke 22, he names it servants versus benefactors. You see, the temple might welcome the marginalized, but inside the holy place, they're still just as marginalized as they were outside. Jesus surrounded himself with the poor. That meant that for the priest, the honored one who was central in society, to get close enough to Jesus to hear him teach, he he had to rub shoulders with the prostitute and stand alongside the ostracized and break bread with the poor. Jesus did not serve the poor. He made them family, such family, in fact, that to associate with Jesus, you must associate yourself with the one that you have ostracized. Whose model are we following, church? Who feels like an outsider when they come inside our doors? Who have we put the biggest social hurdles in front of that they might worship with us in community? Who are we asking to stretch and to grow just so they might participate in our fellowship? See, if those marginalized out there have the most assimilating to do in here, then we've got a lot of work left to do. Because our call is to share the whole of our lives, not just a specified portion of our income or a scheduled allotment of our time. Our call is not only to meet the practical needs of the down and out. It is to love them into the kingdom and find ourselves so immersed in relationship that we gather with them on Sundays and break bread with them in our living rooms. London is not awaiting a slick church with great design and amazing services. But don't make the opposite mistake either. London's also not awaiting a woke church full of people with all the right political persuasions and Twitter comments and social stances. London awaits a new kind of family. People whose friendships don't make sense by the city's unspoken code of conduct and invisible dividing lines. And until that's who we are, London keeps waiting. I was riding the subway in New York one day a couple years ago and it's quite common to be asked for change on the subway in New York City. It's the only place that you get heat in the winter and AC in the summer. And so oftentimes the houseless population will spend all day just riding back and forth across the city underground. And this particular guy, this one day, he wasn't just panhandling. He was verbally accosting all of the passengers, cursing everybody out in my train car for not seeing him, for not caring, clearly unstable, potentially violent, everyone just avoiding eye contact, including me. <coughs> About a month later, I finished preaching, and I go back to my holy pastor seat on the front row, and... A guy in my church named Chadwick walks up to me and he says, Tyler, I want you to meet Mike. He could use some prayer. And I look up and I can't believe it. It's that guy, the guy that was screaming on my subway car. And in the coming days, I found out that Chadwick had met him exactly as I had. And except Chadwick, instead of averting his eyes, interrupted this man's rant to ask his name. 
And then after a long conversation, they end up sharing a couple of meals in the coming days. Chadwick did the best he could to provide sustainable aid, and he eventually invited Mike to church. I, was, I saw a stranger, and I averted my eyes. Chadwick saw a brother and invited him in. That was more than two years ago. Mike is still a part of that church community today. He knows everybody's name and everybody knows his, and he worships with us every time the doors are open. And members of that community have fed him when he had nothing to eat, had him in their homes on Christmas morning, helped him find employment, and then so that he went from panhandling on the subway to earning a legal wage. They got him a room in an apartment that he could afford, and then when that fell through, got him another room in another apartment, and when that fell through, got him another room in another apartment. When he no-showed for rehab the first nine times, there were still people there waiting and praying for him on the 10th. And once a few months ago, it was Mike's birthday, and he hung around church all day while our staff came and went, lingering just like a little kid, waiting for people to remember and wish him happy birthday. And nobody did, but that was on purpose. So Mike's fuming. He's walking around throwing a tantrum, quietly but obviously, just enough so that we would definitely notice, but we all just pretended not to. And then he showed up to the pastoral counseling appointment that one of our pastors had strategically scheduled for him that evening. And when he walked into the church, we all jumped out, surprise! And Mike was so surprised, he fell fully on his back. And the look on his face, it was as holy as the holiest church service I've ever been to. It was as profound as, as the most profound encounter I've ever had with God in worship or in prayer. Now, I'm the guy who averted my eyes and pretended not to notice so I could keep going on with my life uninterrupted. But you know what the community around me did? They welcomed him all the way in so he could become family. And it's really important for you to hear me say this. Mike's story is very unfinished and it's beyond messy. Because recovery and rehabilitation is almost never a linear journey, and it hasn't been for Mike. He's been the source of heavenly breakthrough and plenty of heartache and headache as well. But if our spiritual formation is not edging us increasingly toward the margins, if it's not changing the makeup of this family when we gather together for worship and the makeup of the company that gathers around your dinner table, if it's not making us more uncomfortable at first and then more alive in the end, then go and find out what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that's not a rebuke or a warning. It's not even a call to action. It's an invitation, an invitation to meet God in the eyes of the marginalized. Whatever you do for the least of these, you did for me, Jesus says. He promises to be found in the poor. And so I believe that what Jesus would want to say to so many of us today is you're missing out. There are parts of me that you don't know yet, parts of me that I want to introduce you to, and of course it's going to feel awkward and uncomfortable at first, just like it did the first time you raised your hands in worship or the first time you clasped your hands in prayer, just like it did the first time that you opened your arms to be embraced after an honest confession or the first time you cracked open the scriptures without an idea where to start. It always feels awkward and uncomfortable at first with Jesus, but the places that we meet him become places we return to again and again and again because his presence becomes home. So what I hear Jesus whispering over this community today is, will you meet me in the eyes of the poor and the company of the marginalized? Will you get to know me there? Unless you get beyond your comfort zone first, you'll miss out on the blessedness in the end. I've got so much more of myself to show you. So will you get to know me in the eyes of the poor and in the company of the forgotten?